Today we're going to continue our summer-long series uh, about the Spirit. And the Spirit doesn't uh, often get whole sermon series about, um, about it, about Him. Um, but um, a lot of our purpose is, is that we're so confined in the way we think about the, the, the person of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit. And this was to, to hopefully open up and to see the ways that the Spirit's been operating even from the beginning of all things at creation and is operating for us now in, in, in new and surprising ways, always tied to the old. So um, we're going we're gonna to read from Colossians today, and this is actually a little bit of a surprising place to go when you're going to talk about the Spirit. But I'm going to invite Gary to come up and read for us. Um, if you have a Bible, Colossians, this is really helpful. Uh, after the Gospels and after Romans, then you start to get into Paul's letters, and if, if you have a hard time remembering the order, someone once told me GE Power Company. So you have like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So GE PC, right? So uh, you can open up to Colossians. Gary's going to read from Colossians 3 for us. Therefore, if you were raised with Christ, look for the things that are above, where Christ is sitting at God's right side. Think about the things above and not things on earth. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also be revealed with him in glory. So put to death the parts of your life that belong to the earth, such as sexual immorality, moral corruption, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. The wrath of God is coming upon disobedient people because of these things. You used to live this way when you were alive to these things. You used to live this way when you were alive to these things, but now you set aside these things, such as anger, rage, malice, slander, and obscene language. Don't lie to each other. Take off the old human nature with its practices and put on a new nature, which is renewed in knowledge by conforming to the image of the one who created it. In this image, there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but Christ is all things and in all people. Therefore, as God's choice, holy and loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Be tolerant with each other, and if someone has a complaint against anyone, forgive each other. As the Lord forgave you, so also forgive each other. And over all these things, put on love, which is a perfect bond of unity. The peace of Christ must control your hearts, a peace into which you were called in one body. And be thankful, people. The word of Christ must live in, and be, be, the word of Christ must live in you richly. Teach and warn each other with all wisdom by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing to God with gratitude in your heart. Whatever you do, whether in speech or action, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Gary. So... My hope in planning this series was that we get a 
a really great picture of the personality and the ways the spirit moves, like big, obvious ways, like fire and wind and water, or like the calling and the charisma of King David. We talked about anointing earlier this summer. Or even like the ripening of fruit. Like we, we often think of the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Um, maybe fruit is actually not that obvious, like, because I don't think these fruits are, like, actual fruits growing on a tree that you can point at and watch them ripen and then pick them right when they're perfectly ripe. Um, but nonetheless, these kinds of fruits of the Spirit are kind of progressive and measurable, and you become a different kind of person that possesses virtues by the Spirit that allow you to do different things in your life, like resist temptations that used to rule over you, weather relational storms that used to cause waves of conflict to to roll over top of you. But what about when things seem a lot slower, like a lot more subtle, a lot more mysterious? What about when the, the Spirit's work is so hidden that it's hardly even recognizable to our eyes? We so often want the spirit to move like that sweeping second hand. Like it can go slow, but at least we need to see the, the hand on the clock sweep so we know that it's still working rather than the type of clock that only ticks once every minute or, or uh, chimes on the hour. We want to see that hypnotic sweep around and around. But more often it's like watching grass grow or water boil or paint dry. Like so imperceptible, it's like hidden to us how the spirit works. Colossians is a really good book, a really good letter, actually, to show us this hidden reality. Paul writes to a church that he never met and didn't plant from the quote-unquote comfort of a prison cell. Talk about a, a place of hidden authority, right? For some reason, Paul suffering and captive makes him more authoritative. It gives him more reputability, not less. So he starts this letter singing the praises of the exalted Jesus from prison. He, he says that, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And our ears should perk up there. He's pointing at Jesus, and he's saying, even though he didn't look like anything you might have expected when it comes to God, Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. If God seems hidden from you and mysterious, look at Jesus, and that's actually what God looks like. That's how God acts. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so this is strange new math. You can't see God, but you can see Jesus. Therefore, you can see God. And this is also like creation speak. That, that, that Remember um, at the beginning of the summer, when God created humanity in God's image, male and female, God created them uh, in his image. And, and this says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. But this is also like political talk. Because the image is the seal for the ruler. Like the image bearer of Caesar was both one sent by and one with the full authoritative so, like, uh, force of Caesar. If, you're, if you go in the image of someone, that means you're able to make the calls on their behalf. So you can see how explosive this is, Paul writing this from prison. His message surely relativized the strength of those imprisoning Paul. 
by reminding the Colossians, and it reminds us of Christ's identity and Christ's power. Then by the time we get to chapter 3, which Gary just read part of, we get a, like these little peaks, these little like, it's kind of like an iceberg that uh, most of it is subterranean, but then it starts to just barely peek through the surface, this hidden work, this surprising work of the Spirit in this like wide-ranging passage that reminds us who Jesus is. So today, to do this, I'm kind of um, going to talk about this a little differently than normal because um, if you notice, that passage isn't like obviously about the Spirit, but I'm going to talk about this in terms of five moves of the Spirit that one of my teachers, Jeremy Begbie, helps to highlight the Spirit's work. And I'm going to do that because I think it's sort of like, like, um, like baseball or like going to an art museum that if you know what you're looking for, if you know the moves, if you know how it works, it's way more enjoyable. You start to see how things happen. Like I remember going to the uh, NCMA art museum with a friend who is a PhD in art history. And I expected her to just like unload all this great info about every painting. We get to the painting and, and Rach was there too. And like we just kind of stand there and be like, tell us about this. And instead, she didn't tell us about it, even though she knew about almost every piece in there. Instead, she showed us the moves. She showed us what these artists were doing, and she called us into a way of participating, a way of enjoying. The same, same thing when uh, we watch baseball with the kids, and they have no idea what's going on. They're such football kids. And that's easy to see because you can go back and forth, but baseball goes around. And you start, to, you start to unlock some of the logic. And you start to tell them about the moves. And you, you say, that funny-looking guy sitting in the third base box, when he like, touches himself like this in weird ways, that's giving them signs to do things. And then you can see it start to bloom. They see the moves. They understand what's going on, like the inside baseball stuff, right? So here's kind of the inside baseball of the spirit. First move of the spirit is that the spirit unifies. The Spirit unifies. We see the, this open up in the course of Paul's correspondence. He's, since we're to, quote, put on the new nature which is renewed in knowledge and conforms to the image of the one who created it. We, we, refi- like, we refind out that in this image of Jesus, there aren't any of the normal divisions that seem like written in the stars for us. Jew, Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is in all things. Christ is all things, and Christ is in all things. So all these dueling identities, and and it might be an interesting exercise to to go around and have everyone write all the varying overlapping identities that we all share in this room even. And I'm sure there would be dozens, maybe even a hundred different things. And, and this, is, this is looking at those things and relativizing these dueling identities, all these different ways we slice up our lives and our society, and it says they are being healed in the Spirit to create unity in Christ. In the Spirit, we're being unified with each other because first and foremost, we're being unified with Christ. The language Paul always uses is that we're in Christ. We're inside of this Christ reality. And in Christ, we're brought into this divine family. We're brought into perfect, like, triunity in, in God. 
Early Christians spoke and wrote theologically of the Holy Spirit um, in terms of like the bond of unity between the Father and the Son. So when we start messing with the Spirit, we're drawn into this like dynamic magnetism. If you've ever seen people who really share like amazing intimacy physically, emotionally, spiritually, like there's almost no space between them even when they're they're standing next to each other and that that space between them is almost magnetic and that's what these early Christians imagine the spirit as this bond of unity and peace. Bernard of Clairvaux, St. Bernard, often read scripture this way too. Like he read the song of songs as a love song. First between two lovers like primarily about the love and unity within God but also the love we're brought into the bridegroom of Christ wooing the church, his bride, to be held and transformed in the kiss of the Spirit. This is like enough to make you blush, right? This unity that the Spirit works. A kiss. I don't know about you, but maybe this is the most hidden thing in our recent world. Few of us can imagine like a unity, a true unity beyond like just tolerating each other. Maybe that's what's going on here today. Hopefully when we're at Potluck, we'll move a little beyond tolerating each other to like unity and joy together, right? But Paul imagines unity in Christ. It's nothing too romantic. Like it's not, it's empowered by the Spirit, but this sort of unity doesn't like come automatically or naturally, but it's also not like supernatural either. It's not just like because you believe in Jesus, you gain this unity. Like, it's actually, like, pretty practical and kind of hard fought. Verse 13 reminds us, As the Lord forgave, past tense, you, so also forgive each other. And over all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, so that the peace of Christ might control your hearts, a peace into which you were called in one body. Spirit made unity is hard fought and totally ordinary. We're given a firsthand example of what it feels like to be forgiven by God, and then we're told to follow the leader and to pay that forgiveness forward. Like, forgiving is the way to unity. There's no unity without forgiveness. And if you're like me, like this is something we we learn as kids how how to forgive, but we also learn in our bodies how not to forgive and how hard it is to forgive, and then it gets even harder as we get bigger. But as we're caught into this body, we're supposed to be obsessed with peacemaking. And peacemaking, that's not just a ceasefire, but like a whole-making peace. Like shalom is the Jewish word for this. If that seems hard now, know that there's nothing new under the sun. In that like first-century Roman empire also loved nothing more than to keep like a certain kind of peace, that was really not spirit-led peace thriving for, striving for wholeness, but it was like this Pax Romana that just gives enough leeway so that we can all live together and so that like power doesn't ever change. Um, but this spirit-led, spirit-fed body of Christ, peace and unity is different. As Ike preached last week, both individually and corporately, when we live lives animated by the spirit it makes us over time strong enough to be gentle it also makes us like patient 
endurable enough to stick with it when it's hard and to, to give ourselves to someone else in forgiveness. It's what it means to bear the fruit of the Spirit together, to bear the fruit for the good of each other and for the good of our world, peace and unity. So the first move of the Spirit is that the Spirit unifies. The second move of the Spirit is that the Spirit opens out. Like this is really strange language, but it, it, in this life of unity by the Spirit, like these aren't sequential things, right? The Spirit unifies, the Spirit opens out. It's not one after another. You can't put numbers on it. Some of, some of, these, some of these things happen over top of each other and at the same time. We've often joked that Oak Church is a really friendly group of introverts, and I think that that is true based on the way you all sat when you came in. Like, I, I looked at, like, 10.05, and the, there were enough people in here to, like, triangulate the maximum amount of physical distance from each other in all of these pews, right? <laughs> so, and, and I'm, that's just an observation, right? Uh, yeah, this is kind of our rallying cry, right? This is our unity. Uh, so... But here's the thing about the Spirit opening us out, right? Uh, another way to say that is that the Spirit extroverts us. Gasp. Everyone gasp, right? Here's what I mean by that. I don't think our personalities are going to change. I don't think where we draw or lose our energy from is necessarily going to change in the Spirit. But I think our focus and I think our orientation definitely will. Rather than being people turned in on our, in our, ourselves, the Spirit opens us out to God and to each other. Opens us out to this world that God created and the world that even now God is recreating in our midst. So the Spirit is not a spirit of navel-gazing, but rather of a posture of other-considering, of praise, of wonder. You, you can't praise and wonder if you're always looking at the ground. You have to be opened out to this world. And so our passage today presents this vice list, and this happens a lot in ancient Near Eastern literature. It happens a lot in Paul's letters, this, this list of things, and they're not exhaustive. Like, he, he could probably keep going and going on this vice list. Um, in this, he, he mentions uh, after one vice list, then he goes into another about anger and rage and malice and slander and bad language, the ways that you lived when you were alive to those things. And then he talks about they're lying to each other. Apparently, this is a problem in Colossae. Then Paul entreats them to take off the old and put on the new. Be transformed. Notice all of, the, of those vices, like, close down rather than open up. All of these vices are constrictive, right? How could they be of the spirit if they close down? Like anger is always like past-oriented and often like fear-laced. If we're anxious and we're angry in that way, we're mad about something that happened or some perception of slight. Rage is going to end this once and for all. It's destructive rather than constructive. Malice is ill-intended, trying to stack the deck for an outcome that either wins or wounds, right? Slander tries to make others 
pick sides in this zero-sum game. Bad language is just like a vocabulary of scarcity rather than wonder and respect and praise. And then lying to each other. I think each other might be the more important word than the verb lying. This means it's possible to exist and to interact with each other in a closed down way rather than one that opens out to each other and is truthful. It lives in the light with each other and tells the truth. The spirit takes this old way and kills it off. The spirit like sprays Roundup on these weeds so that something impossibly beautiful can grow instead. Since Christ died for us, we've been crucified in that death. And since he was raised by the Father in the Spirit, we too are raised to new life in the Spirit. A life that can grow. <laughs> if you've ever seen a, a plant or a flower or a tree grow in a closed-down way, no, it always grows open to the sun. If you put it in, in a windowsill, it's always going to tilt towards the sun. This is an extroverted life. This extroverted, opened-out spirit life is that fist that once was clenched in anger, malice, and rage is now open to working with God and with each other, to the possibility of even being wounded, but also for the possibility of working healing. So when we say the spirit extroverts us, it refits us for relationships, first with God and then with each other. Well, we often think of extroverts as like anything but subtle. You, you think of an extroverted person in your life right now, and they're probably not the most subtle person in your life right now. This extroverted spirit is so adept at pointing us to Christ and opening us up to love God, we hardly even recognize her, right? So take heart, fellow introverts. If the spirit is opening you out, You'll still, be the center, you'll still not be the center of attention, but you'll also be challenged to stretch, and, and you might like open out in a way that is a little uncomfortable at first, but you'll get used to it. If, if, you, if you are an introvert, you probably are gifted with this like attention and attentiveness that many extroverts aren't, and you'll have to put that attentiveness to work, not for your own good, but so that someone else might experience the love and the life of God through you. So that brings us to the third move of the Spirit, that the Spirit particularizes. And this is a really strange word also. My teacher, he's British, and so he uses strange words. There probably wasn't a Z on that originally in his notes. This is a fancy word for the ways the Spirit works in the quirks and nuances of each of our lives if we pay attention to it. Sometimes these are the things we're most proud of, our quirks. Sometimes it's the things that we're completely oblivious to that most everyone else sees our quirkiness and the nuances of our lives. And sometimes these things are the things that we're most ashamed of. And somehow, mysteriously, the Spirit's work of unifying us to the Father through the Son, but also to others who are in Christ, often gets met, like misread as some sort of like factory conveyor, conveyor belt sort of operation, when actually it's a craft. When actually it, it pays so deeply attention to all the little details and all the little nooks. Uh, this is the one picture I thought of. Uh, and you can see this, this piece of wood with all these like flaws and imperfections, but amazing things that, that reflect a history and a life. Again, we see this in the dueling identities of our passage. Greek, Jew, 
circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, each with their own histories, each with bodies that bear evidences, even scars of an identity. Some of these are even like racial markers. And each of these identities are not ultimate, though. Only our identity in Christ is. They're not, but each of these identities are not abolished or erased. When they're put in the right order, each becomes a really beautiful component of the church, like a vital, necessary component for this new society, this new family, this new body, this people of God. Like, I think this is a really important note for us for this ever-changing world we're in right now. There's a recent survey that came out um, from PRRI, and they polled white evangelicals in our country, and, and they asked the question, um, what, what would you feel about it, uh, if our country becomes uh, majority non-white? Um, majority minority, basically. And 52% of white evangelical Protestants said that they would be threatened, that that would be a negative development. So we've seen the sorts of compromises such fear causes people to make. I don't just want to focus on the fear that that's important. But what's astonishing to me is these like white evangelicals who know the Bible so well um, have such little imagination and such little attention for what the Spirit is doing in our world. Like, they must not have read Revelation 5. That gives us this beautiful, if not a little trippy picture of the future of the church of the nations. It says, They sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Every tribe, language, people, and nation, that's like everyone, is, is in Christ worshiping God. This is like the common thread. Again, we mentioned we partner with people. This is like the common thread running through all sorts of different kind of work, Right? And this is what folks like World Relief are doing, not just trying to, to aid and relieve suffering for refugees, but to enlarge our vision for a global church so that when one part of the body hurts, we all hurt. This is a thread that runs through like Reality Ministries' work of cultivating beloved community between persons with and without physical and developmental disabilities. This thread runs through like the work of racial equity and reconciliation and waking up that many of us are trying to do as we faithfully struggle to understand and articulate like all of these major forces in our neighborhood, in our city, in our country. This thread runs right through the work of our church network of empowering women leaders at every level of the church for the good of the church and the world. Because all these things are being taken up by the Spirit and then given back to us as a gift in all their particularity. Like I, I've joked with you guys before that I have spiritual FOMO, like fear of missing out. Because we've been given all of these gifts and so often we just like activate or enjoy a couple of them. A couple of the ones that are easy or a couple of the extroverts. When, when actually if we paid attention, if we trusted in the spirit, we would have everything we need. We'd have more than enough. We've already been given that. That's amazing. <laughs> the, uh, 
I, that could be the whole sermon right there. That's amazing. And so we, w- when we join in with the Spirit, it, it helps us to open our eyes and to, to see these particularities. My hope is that you feel this at Oak Church, that, that you feel this, um, even when we say little things like, we're less without you. That means like when you're not here, um, we're less without you. That we're physically, like actually less without you. That means we're less without like your obvious gifts. We're also less without your more subtle gifts. And we're, we're less without you serving as a missionary in the very specific place with very specific experiences and a web of relationships that you already have. If you're not here, we're less without that. We're less without the wounds that you bring to us. Because in the spirit, we trust that these wounds are going to be like Christ's wounds and they're going to be transfigured as marks of God's steadfast love and grace. My friend Jeremy, my teacher Jeremy puts it this way. The Holy Spirit takes the givenness of what has happened in Christ and brings it alive in ever fresh ways and new contexts. Moreover, God can take our most catastrophic mistakes and recreate them. Make them serve his drama. This is the wonder that Christians call salvation. It's not simply a matter of being acquitted, let off a penalty, but of being recreated, remade for a new future. Lord, give us the attentiveness to see these gifts and give us the imagination to steward and unleash them in our community, in our neighborhood, in our homes, in our work. Fourth, the Spirit previews. And I won't spend much time on this because this will be actually what the sermon will be about next week as we close. But the Spirit likes to give little taste, little teasers, little appetizers of what's coming. This is often hidden now, but will be revealed in full. The Apostle Paul says that we look through a mirror dimly, but one day we'll see face to face. And at the beginning of Colossians, Paul talks about that they have, that we have Christ in them. Now, the hope of glory, and hope and glory are always future-oriented, but we have that in us now. So we're at this strange interlap of the times. And so I always think that next week, uh, when we talk about this related to the Spirit, that we need to go back to the future a little bit um, as the Spirit previews. Finally, the Spirit plays jazz. This is the last move. And I know we have some jazz people here, so I'm not going to talk too, too much about jazz because I don't know what I'm talking about. But in other words, the spirit improvises. We also have some improv people here too. That's amazing. Improvisation only comes though, like good improv, good jazz, only comes like when you've done the hard work. You've done the hard work of learning the scales, and anyone that has had a brother or sister, or maybe you've taken lessons, or maybe your kids are taking music lessons, you know how those, sa- those scales sound, and they're really clumsy, and they're really annoying, and you want earplugs at first, but those eventually bloom into beautiful music that then can go even further. It's <clears throat> they, th- this way of improvising that the Spirit does it, it somehow manages to be consistent with the character and nature of God, but it also surprises us. 
There's new ways that God relates to us. The Spirit is ever adaptive and responsive and calls us into this skilled, trusting jazz terrain. And what you're seeing is a picture of, is an icon of John Coltrane. <laughs> There's a church in San Francisco that, that has an icon of jazz player John Coltrane. After all the advice that we've gotten in Colossians 3, how does Paul slam his point home? By telling them to close their notebooks and then he benedicts them to go and work this out in the classroom setting? No. Um, does he make sure everyone does their own private devotional homework and then hopefully they'll come to the same conclusions? No. <laughs> you guys are so quiet right now. We're talking, we're talking about jazz, man. <laughs> so, no. It doesn't say that this should have an outworking in a laboratory or in a classroom. He doesn't say that this should just be a private affair. No. In a beautiful and surprising spirit-led twist, the end of this part of the letter ends with, the word of Christ must live in you richly. Teach and warn each other with all wisdom. Then he kind of goes crazy here and says, by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, songs of the Spirit, sing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Then whatever you do, whether in speech or action, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God the Father through him. I can't, like, think of a stranger way to have us work this out than by singing together, right? What a weird and impractical way. Uh, but I also can't help... But, like, when you read some of these things, and, and it's amazing the, the way the Spirit jogs other adjacent thoughts to help, to help work through this. So uh, I recently learned about this amazing phenomenon that sometimes happens in, like, bands that have played together for a long period of time. These are normally, like, house bands that play, like, every night of the week for years and years on end. They're normally, like, if you go to a bluegrass club, or jazz club, they're the old guys who have been playing forever. And this phenomenon is, is something called like stage telepathy, right? Has anyone ever heard of this? Do you know what I'm talking about with this? It means you, you know each other so well that even when you screw up, you can anticipate that screw up and bring it into what everyone else is doing. Isn't that amazing? That is so amazing. And that, again, requires a, a whole lot of practice. But you know each other so deeply and your musical vocabulary and rhythm is so unified that you can work together even in missteps. Even wrong notes are anticipated and accounted for. And sometimes like, um, you'll, see, you'll see people that they, they know this about themselves and so they'll like throw each other through a loop and they pick it up. And it's like, you think that was planned but it was actually just something they possess this like sixth sense. Like, in my mind, this is way better than another strange phenomen phenomenon called blood harmony, where like people in the same family can sing the same harmonies and like merge in and out together. Something to work on, Pershaw Brothers, right? Blood harmony. But blood harmony requires that you have this this same blood running through your veins, the same the same lineage, this this brotherhood or sisterhood or siblinghood, right? Stage telepathy doesn't require that. Stage telepathy just means you're going to put in the time and you're going to open yourself out to others. I think this is amazing. 
something, even our missteps are taken up in the Spirit. This is something the Spirit does for us, this sort of stage telepathy. Like I think of Romans 8 where the Spirit even intercedes for us in our silence or in our groans that are too deep for words and forms those and puts them into prayer that is prayed by Jesus into the ear of the Father who hears us. Stage telepathy by the Spirit for our sake. There's something so wonderful about the conclusion that long list of our hidden and plain sight life in Jesus that looks like this not-so-practical application of teaching and warning each other in song. Because singing means that you have to do this together. Sure, you can sing by yourself, but it's not nearly as fun as when you start to sing with someone else. But singing requires that you stay on pace and on key with someone else, that you listen for them. Singing requires far more than just our heads, but also our breath. That's something the Spirit's really interested in, breath. It's, it requires our bodies, like diaphragm and lungs and windpipe and larynx and nose and mouth. Singing embraces our emotions. While it's possible to sing angry, malicious songs, it's far more fun to sing songs of gratitude, and I think Paul knows that even in prison. And it's in our singing, it's in our practice that we're made perfect in Christ. Not like pitch perfect, perfect, but complete. We're made complete and full, and that fullness spills out into whatever else you do in word and deed do in the name of Jesus and for the glory of God the Father. Whatever else you do. Talk about jazz, like talk about improv, Whatever else you do is in taking up a yes with our lives so that every other thing we're doing is saying yes to God and saying, here I am, choose me, I'll go. So I pray that Oak Church might continue to be a place for these moves to happen, these moves of the Spirit. And I pray that our, now that we have vocabulary together, we'll be able to see these moves, these unifying, extroverting, particularizing, previewing, jazz-playing moves of the Spirit that'll sink us up so deeply with what God's doing in our world so that it'll bring out abundance and surprise and novelty and unpredictability in the midst of and out of the order that's already in this world, that's already in our lives. I pray that we won't shy away from, but we'll lean into and experience this together in truth, in love, and forgiveness. Will you guys pray with me? Now, Father, we thank you for this spirit who, who makes these moves, um, who calls us to you and, and joins us to your life. Um, we thank you for a spirit that is not intimidated by our differences, but loves them and um, does everything to, to make them pop and to um, bring the peace that only we can be uh, into this community, the, the body part into this body. We thank you for the spirit that uh, opens us out. And Lord, we ask that you make us a little uncomfortable. Um, uh, you're, you're so kind to us, but we also ask that you stretch us out open us up. We might not be selfish, but we might have our eyes up and our head on a swivel to what you're doing around us. And we thank you 
uh, for the spirit that, that plays jazz. Surprises this week, um, just with one or two things. Surprises for the ways that you're taking our missteps and you're, you're bringing them back into, into tune, into harmony with you. Uh, we thank you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.